the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. If you're there, would you say amen? amen. All right, I want you to look this way, if you will. I, I read this week about a farmer who was going to play an Easter trick on his children. So early that Easter Sunday morning, he goes out to the chicken coop. He gathers up all the white eggs that the chickens have laid during the night, and he replaces those white eggs with these beautifully colored dyed eggs and then makes his way back into the house. In just a little while, his intentions are to send the children out uh, to find these colored eggs and get them to thinking that for Easter, those chickens have laid colored eggs. Meanwhile, while he has gone back into the house, the rooster walks into the chicken coop, tall and proud. And then he sees all those brightly colored eggs. So what does he do? He goes outside, finds the peacock, and beats him up. Well, the one thing that I'm aware of on this Easter Sunday morning is that people have a million places to go after church. If you're like my family, we always have a big meal together. It's a family meal on Sunday, uh, Sunday morning, Easter, after church. We gather together and enjoy a big meal. In fact, my wife cooked all day long yesterday, and we have the traditional meal of the Coca-Cola ham and the potato salad and the baked beans and the pies and the cakes. Oh, yeah, and you're not invited? No. No, you're not invited. Go get your own Easter meal. But anyway, we're excited about that meal after church this morning. So I understand this is a very, very busy day. So with that in mind, as I came to preparing my Easter Sunday morning message, I wanted something very simple, very short, but very straight to the point. And so this morning, if you look upon the screens, I've chosen to preach on this subject for our Easter Sunday morning service. I want to preach on a Reader's Digest Easter. I don't know if you've ever picked up one of those things. You probably have. Maybe in a doctor's office or sitting somewhere one day. Picked up a Reader's Digest. But what they attempt to do in those Reader's Digests is they attempt to take long stories, leave out a few of the unnecessary details, and try to condense it down into a much shorter story without, you know, really you know, uh, discarding really what the gist of the story is, uh, is all about. And let me just say right up front that I really personally believe that every part of the Easter story is very important, and I get that. Every part, every player in the Easter story is important. But my attempts this morning is uh, if I could to try to condense the story down, to compress it down without really discarding the importance of what happened on that Easter Sunday morning. So I got to thinking, you know, where could I go in the Bible and find the whole Easter story kind of just broken down, condensed down into maybe just one sentence? And then it hit me. So I want you to join me this morning in the Gospel of Luke, chapter number 9, and I want to give you a one-sentence Easter story. That's right. I want to give you the Reader's Digest version of the Easter story. So look at Luke chapter 9. Look, if you will, at verse number 22. And these are the words of the Lord Jesus, and here's what he tells us in verse 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be slain and be raised 
the third day. Now there you have it. In the space of only one verse, I counted them, you don't have to, 28 words. But in this particular text, we have the entire Easter story. Now, of course, I get it, we're minus the Pilots, the Herods, and the Judases. We're minus the Barabbas and the Simon and the dying thief. We're minus the fleeing disciples, the denier, denial of Peter and the angels. But I think here in just a compressed, condensed form, we still have the whole Easter story. So if you'll join me for just a moment, I'd like to break these 28 words apart. Let's see if we can't just get down to the Easter story, do it quickly, and yet drive home the great truth of what Easter is really all about. So join me now in verse number 22. Let me see if we can sum up Easter in only three statements. Number one, the first statement I would make about verse number 22 is what I want to call the necessity of Easter. The necessity of Easter. Now look at verse 22 and we read these words, the Son of Man, and then here's that word, the word of necessity. The Son of Man must now, we come to understand from just this first little simple statement in this verse that Easter was a must for God. It was a must for God. Now, just so we're all on the same page this morning, here are some synonyms for the word must. The word must simply means required. It means necessary or it means essential. So I guess we could say it like this. You know, Easter was really a, an essential Really, Easter was required. Maybe I could say it like this. Easter was necessary. Now, the point that I'm trying to make uh, is simply this. Easter was an absolute for God. There was no plan B. There was no other way. There was no alternate route. There was no other choice. There had to be an Easter. Now, don't ever think that what happened on Easter, what happened at Calvary, which is a part of the Easter story, don't ever think that that was kind of like an ambulance rushing to the scene of some kind of a medical emergency. You know, many times when you're driving down the road, and maybe you see it in the rear view mirror, but way off back behind you is an ambulance, you know, and you can see the lights flashing, and, and it won't be long as they get closer. You can hear the blaring of the, of the siren, and when we see that, or maybe you're driving uh, down the road, and up the road comes an ambulance, uh, uh, you know, with the sirens on, and then you hear the blaring of all of that. You know, when we, when we see that and we hear that, we always think somebody is in trouble. Somebody is in distress. There's somebody that set out that morning that didn't realize a wreck was going to happen to them that day. There's somebody that set up, woke up that morning that didn't think, didn't even think about it, maybe didn't even enter their mind that this would be the day that they were going to have a heart attack. There's somebody somewhere that didn't think that this would be the day they would have that bad fall, break a hip or an arm or something was going to happen. So when we see an ambulance, we understand there is an emergency and that ambulance is rushing to the scene of an emergency. But can I just stop and say this morning that Calvary was not God's ambulance rushing to the scene of man's distress. No, sir. God knew in his omniscience that he was going to create a man. God knew before he ever created that man that one day that man was going to disobey him. 
him. And one day that man was going to rebel against his wishes. And God knew because of that rebellion and that disobedience that man would fall from the lofty heights of innocence to the very depths of depravity. God knew that that man's sin would one day eventually separate him from the very man that he created, the man that he loved, from the people that he created and the people that he loved. Before, So before God ever created a man, God hatched a plan. God devised a way for that man to be brought back unto himself. Hey, can I just say this, ladies and gentlemen? Easter was not God's attempt to clean up a mess that man had made. Man didn't create a mess and then God figure out how to save him. Not on your life, friend. Before God ever created this world, God knew it all. So Jesus Christ was God's lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. The, that plan would include his son entering the world and dying once and for all for the sin debt that you and I owed. So here's what I'm suggesting. I'm suggesting to you that before there was ever sin, there was already salvation. Before there was ever failure, there was already forgiveness. Before there was ever guilt, there was already grace. And before there was ever a hell, there was already a heaven. God had already devised a plan for mankind to be saved, but that plan included his son died on an old rugged cross, and it was a divine must. Jesus must suffer many things. He must go to Jerusalem and die. That's the reason I'm saying that Easter was a must. Now we read that word must many times in our Bible. You know, we're told this in John chapter three, verse number seven, marvel not, Jesus said, that I said unto thee, ye, there it is right there, ye must be born again. So there's the word, we must be born again. The first birth got us into trouble. The first birth brought us into this world. The first birth got us into trouble with God. And Jesus said, okay, if you're going to go to heaven, you've got to be born again. You must be born again. The same Bible that said you must be born again also uses the word must in this context. In Acts chapter 4 and verse number 12, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby ye, here it is again, ye must what you must be saved didn't say you must be baptized didn't say you must join the church didn't say you must do the best that you possibly can but it does say this you must be saved can I have an amen must be born again must be saved then I like this we read these words in John chapter 3 and verse number 30 the Bible said John the Baptist said he must increase and I must decrease I'm telling you friend you can't get around that's a good use of the word must in our Bible and then what about this John 3 14 as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness even so here it is again must the son of man be lifted up uh, the Bible tells us that word must I just want to say Calvary was was a must I mean there was no other way no plan B no alternate right no other way. Calvary, Easter was a must. In fact, let me say it like this. Calvary was on God's calendar before creation was on God's calendar. Way back before God created the world. 
God circled in red Easter's date on his calendar. You know, we got a lot of young couples in our church that are getting married this year. I, this year, I've had one wedding. I've got nine more to go that I know of. That just gets me through the month of October. I got 10 weddings this year. I already had one. But you know something? These young couples in our day, you know, before they get married, months before they get married, they'll pass out those save-the-date cards. You ever get one of those through the mail? Or maybe they'll come up to you and hand you a card and say, hey, save the date. And it'll have maybe the picture of the bride and the groom or the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the two that get married, the fiancé, you know, get married, and they're standing there. And, and then right underneath it'll have the date of their wedding. Now, what they're saying is this. This is a special day in our life. It really is. And we are inviting you to be a part of our special day. Now, don't you plan anything else on this day. Don't go out of town. Don't get sick. Don't die. Whatever. Don't plan anything for this day. We're inviting you to our special day. We want you to be a part of this day. Well, can I stop and say before God ever created the earth, before God ever scooped up the mountains, before God ever carved out the oceans, before God ever turned the sun on by day or the moon by night, before God ever tacked down the carpet of green grass or painted the sky blue, in the mind of God he had set aside a day. He passed out to the angels to save the day card. God was saying to the angels, this is going to be a day like no other day. This will be a day when heaven meets earth. This will be a day when time meets eternity. This this will be a day when good meets evil. This will be a day when heaven meets hell. This is going to be the most important day that there's ever been before at a place, the most important place that there's ever been. The geographical center of the earth was Calvary's hill, and God said, save the date. I've got it in my mind. My son's going to die so that mankind can be brought back to me. Oh, yeah, Calvary, Easter was a necessity. Can I tell you something? Really, what took place at Easter was right at the center of everything that's ever happened. That's right. The most important day this earth has ever known was the day of Easter. Can I prove it to you? Listen to me. Can I just prove it to you? What do they, they call us on this side of the, on this side of the globe? They, they call us the West. We're known as the West. You know, the, the Westerners. On the other side of the globe, they're, they're known as the East. Sometimes they refer to them as the, the Far East. But in between the West and the East, there's a place called the Middle East. And the geographical center of the Middle East is the city of Jerusalem. More importantly than that, the geographical center of the city of Jerusalem is a place called Calvary. And right there at the very center of everything, the crossroads of east and west, right there at the very center of all things, God circled a date. God made a plan that right there, the most important event that would ever happen would take place right there at the center of all things. And there we find that Easter was a necessity. The necessity of the Easter. But there's a second thing we read in this text. Not only do we find the necessity of Easter, but second of all, we come to understand a little bit about the misery of Easter. 
Because our text says there in verse 22, the son of man must suffer. And then watch this. He must do what? He must suffer many things. Now in our mind, we go to, we go to Calvary. We, the place of his suffering. Uh, uh, a place only one time in the Bible, in the Gospel of Luke, is it called Calvary. Other times it's referred to as Golgotha. Other times it's referred to as, as the place of the skull. So I guess we could call it Old Skull Hill. And among the many things that we find about Calvary, there are two things that has to amaze us about what took place at Calvary that day. I mean, when we read those phrase, that phrase, the Son of Man must, that's the necessity of it, suffer many things, that's the misery of, of Easter. That's right. He must suffer many things. That reminds us of the violence of Calvary, the violence of it all. You know, that phrase there, look at those two words, verse 22, must suffer many things. Volumes could be written about those two words, many things. They're not words in the human vocabulary to aptly describe what Jesus went through on Calvary. Look at that phrase, many things. Included in those two words are the betraying and the binding and the blaspheming and the beating, and the bruising, and the battering, and the bludgeoning, and the bleeding of Calvary. I mean, you stop and think about it, Calvary right there at the geographical center of the entire earth. Right there, right there, mankind was at its worst. And God was at his best. Mankind was doing their worst. And God was doing his best. When the Lord Jesus was erected on that cross, he was rejected. He was subjected. He was infected. He was affected. He was dejected. And he was neglected. He was rejected by his very own. He was subjected to pain. He was infected as well as affected by our sin. He was dejected and neglected by his own father. But bless your heart, when he was hanging there on that cross, when he was erected and subjected and infected and affected and dejected and neglected, bless your heart, he did all that so we could be connected and protected and elected and selected and perfected and accepted by our God. Amen. Thank God for Calvary. You know, in our day and age, we have a, uh, we have a, we've coined a phrase. You know, in our day, brutal murders are just as common as the cold. I mean, every day, almost every day of our life, we read about people who are beat to death by the, by the claw ends of hammer. I, I read just, I believe it was this past week, up in the state of New Jersey, that this, uh, this uh, worker, this uh, social worker was trying to help this homeless person. And, uh, and, and I don't know, maybe there were some emotional problems, whatever, but this homeless person took an ax and just beat to death this social worker that was trying to help her. Then after she cut her to pieces, maimed her beyond recognition, she got a knife and then just stabbed her repeatedly over and we've coined a word for stuff like that. It's called overkill. I mean, how many times do you watch these uh, crime programs on TV and you find somebody's been stabbed 
25, 30, 50 times, and the police will say it was an overkill murder. Well, can I just stop and say that Calvary was the overkill of all overkills. It was the ultimate overkill. There on the cross of Calvary, Jesus suffered in untold misery and pain. Jesus suffered as nobody had ever suffered. Jesus was beaten as no one has ever been beaten. Jesus was put to death as no one has ever been put to death before because it was not just physical suffering. It was not just emotional suffering. It was spiritual suffering as Jesus was being put to death on Calvary that day. Nobody's ever died like Jesus died. I'm talking about the misery of Easter. You say, preacher, why did he have to die like that? You know, in our day, we try to make executions, uh, which, which crucifixion was a form of Roman execution. We try to make it as humane as possible. So what we do is there's, it's shrouded in complete silence. Only a few people are brought in and then uh, someone is laid on a stretcher and they're injected with a drug and we try to make it as humane as possible. But friend, there's nothing humane about the way that Jesus was treated. He died as no man has ever died. Somebody said, preacher, why did he have to die like that? Because God was satisfying his righteous and just and holy demands in beating and bruising his own son. God was saying to you and me, Here's what I think about your sin. Here's what I think about your cussing. Here's what I think about your drinking. Here's what I think about your drugs. Here's what I think about your immorality. Here's what I think about your pornography. God was saying over and over, I hate your sin. But God was also saying, but I sure do love you as a sinner. Aren't you glad for that? The violence of Calvary. It's summed up in that, those two words, many things. That, it, it amazes me, the violence of it all. But here's another thing that amazes me, and that's the silence of it all. I mean, you know, throughout the Bible, the Lord Jesus is likened unto the Lamb. Over and over again, especially when you get in the New Testament, Jesus is called on several different occasions, the Lamb the Lamb of God. In the Old Testament, we find that there were lambs that were raised for the purpose of nothing more than killing them. They were all pointing forward to the day that God's Son, His perfect Lamb, would come into the world. And there are two great questions that are asked in our Bible about the Lamb. The first question is this question here in Genesis 22, verse 7. Where's the Lamb? Where is the lamb, Abraham and Isaac are walking up the mountain. And Isaac is carrying the wood and there's Abraham who's been commanded by God to kill his own son. Offer him up as a sacrifice. And they're walking up that, up that, uh, up that uh, mountain and Isaac looks over at his father and he said, Daddy, the, 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 the wood, the fire. But Daddy, where's the lamb? Where's the lamb? And then we come across two millennium of time and we read this statement in John 1 29 the next day John seeth Jesus and saith coming and saith unto him behold the lamb you know what Jesus was Jesus was our lamb can I have it amen Jesus was our light to take care of our darkness Jesus was our life to take care of our death but Jesus is our lamb to take care of our dirtiness. 
The dirtiness of our sin is lifted out by the blood of the Lamb. And then we read this, and I'm, I'm coming in for a landing now, but look at Isaiah 53, 7, speaking of Jesus in an Old Testament prophecy, history written before it was happened. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. This is talking about Calvary. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he opened the silence of Calvary. Not one word, not one word of contempt, not one word of complaint, not one word of condemnation. Jesus, in silence, like a lamb, walked up Calvary's hill knowing full well what waited him when he got on top of that hill. But the Bible said he opened not his mouth, the silence of Calvary. If I were to mention an old, uh, uh, an old preacher, some of you that's been around church a long time would remember this old preacher's name, but his name is D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody pastored the great Moody Church in Chicago centuries ago, a century ago now, century plus ago, was the pastor of the Moody Church in Chicago. And on one occasion, on one occasion, they invited him to go to the Armor Meatpacking Company at that time that was located in the city of Chicago. Uh, the ruins of it are still there. It's no longer in use. The buildings have fallen down. People go in there and and, uh, you know, they write graffiti on the walls. It's just dilapidated. It's fallen in now. But he was invited on one occasion to go to the Great Armor Meatpacking Companies. You know, potted meat, viney sausages. Can I get some of y'all come back to life now? <laughs> viney sausages, potted meat. Armor meat packing company. It was said this. Listen to this. I read this this week. Every day when it was running at its zenith, there were five, on an average day 500 cows, 1,500 hogs, and 300 sheep put to death every day at the Armor Meat Packing Company. Think about that. And they used every part of it, every part of the hog. That's why I, I, I love potted meat, but I don't eat it much no more. I love viney sausages, but I don't eat them much no more. But every part of the animal was put inside of that process. Moody said he went to that building, and they took him to the building where the cows, 500 of them a day, were being slaughtered. And they said as they led those cows into that slaughtering place to face the slaughterer, said those cows were lowing and moaning as they marched to their death. They took him over to where the 1,500 hogs were being killed and he said those old pigs were being herded in there and he said they were squealing, squealing loudly as they were marched to their death. But then they took him over there to where them, them uh, 300 sheep were being killed and he said as they herded them sheep to face the, 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 the knife of the slaughter, the slaughterer, said that was just an eerie stillness. They marched to their death and they opened not their mouth. Boy, I think about Jesus going up Calvary's hill, beaten to a pulp, 
can't even recognize that he's a man, been beaten so bad, his visage has been marred, his back has been laid open, his entrails have been exposed, he's been beaten, he's, he's dehydrated, his blood is running out. I mean, man, he's at the point of death. And they take him up Calvary's hill and like a sheep to the slaughter. I think about all that he could have said. I think about how he could have said that day, hey, you go ahead and put me on in the grave today, but tomorrow I'll put you in hell. He could have said, hey, you laugh today, but I'll have the last laugh. But as he marched up Calvary's hill, not a word of contempt, not a word of complaint, not a word of condemnation, and he willingly laid down his life in silence. I'm just trying to illustrate the misery of Easter. So there's the necessity of Easter. There's the misery of Easter. But can I wrap up this text by talking a little bit about the victory of Easter? Because we read in the last statement of these verses here, of this verse, he's going to be rejected of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. And he's going to be slain. You ever know, you ever felt those feelings of rejection before? Some of y'all, maybe at some point or another, and I guess we've all had this experience, but maybe some sweet on some little girl, or as the case may be, as a young lady, sweet on some boy, only to have those feelings rejected and not be returned. Oh, uh, you know how horrible you felt about all that. Maybe some of you asked somebody to marry you before, and they rejected you, rejected your, uh, your offer, your proposal. And all the feelings of rejection. The Bible said Jesus came into his own and his own received him not. The very elders, chief priests and scribes. But I'm glad the story doesn't end there because the Bible said he is going to be slain. He's going to be killed. But that's not the end of it all. In the Reader's Digest version of the Easter story, we read these words. Don't worry about it. He's going to die but he's going to be raised the third day. They'll put him to death, but he won't stay dead. They'll put him in the grave, but he's coming back. He, hey, listen, Jesus died on that cross. He just didn't swoon. He didn't pass out from the loss of blood. He didn't go into some kind of coma because of all the pain. Friend, he died on Calvary. I mean, you hook him up to an EKG, to hook an EKG up to his heart, there's no heart activity. You hook him up to an EEG, there's no brain activity. He died. 72 hours, he was dead. 72 hours, his body, lifeless body, lay inside that grave. And yet, friend, on the morning of the third day, on the morning of the third, 72 hours later, God breathed. <sighs> back life into the dead body of his son and he that was dead was alive again. Friend, I'm here to tell you, they say a moment ago, hey, we ain't serving some kind of a dead God. No, sir, we ain't serving some kind of a mummy wrapped up in a tomb somewhere. Our Lord lives today. He's ascended back to the Father, but he gave us the promise, you've not seen the last of me. I will be back again. He was raised on the third day. Don't, don't let people deceive you. 
Don't let people just tell you that that morning when those ladies went out to the tomb, they got mixed up and went into the wrong tomb where nobody had ever been laid. Don't let them tell you that. Don't let people tell you that those disciples were just so heartbroken and so overcome with grief that they just imagined he rose again from the grave. Hey, don't let this crowd tell you that they, they hallucinated. They wanted him to live so bad that they just hallucinated and made up the whole story. No, sir, friend, not on your life. He that was dead was alive and is alive and he's alive forevermore. Friend, I'm here to tell you that our Savior he is alive. He lives today. He came back victoriously from the grave. They may have killed him, but he wouldn't stay dead. I read this story this week, and I'm closing now. We got to go. My ham's in the crock pot, and, and we got to go. The gross, the, uh, uh, the, the, we brought the potato salad in and put it in the refrigerator back there. It's calling my name. We got to go. Understand we got banana pudding, Peanut butter pie and lemon pie waiting on us right after church. We got to go. But I read this story this week. Listen to this story. It proves the point. It's back in the early 1800s, around 1815, the month of July. None of us were alive back then. But can I tell you something? That July the 15th, 1800, uh, July the 12th, 1815, was a day that will live in history forever. You probably think, what in the world happened that day? Well, that was the day that a man, a general by the name of Wellington, with all the forces of the British, met the incomparable general, Napoleon, at a place called Waterloo. I mean, that was the day that was going to that was going to determine the course of the history of this world going forward. And Wellington had gathered all of his armies together. They'd marched, across, they'd marched across India and through the plains and they'd, they, met, they met Napoleon and his mighty army. The Brits were severely outnumbered and all of England knew that that would be the day that the war would be fought. The England was waiting. They were waiting for word back about how the war went. So here's what they did. Didn't have cell phones, didn't have internet access, didn't have telephones. I mean, none of that. The only way they could find out the results of the battle would be for it to be carried from place to place by runners. And they would run from place to place with the news of how the battle went. And they told, they told in, in, the, in the country of England, they told them to stand high in the Winchester Tower in the Winchester Cathedral, they were to stand with their, with their looking glasses and stare out into the, into the channel there was a ship stationed out in the channel and that word would leak its way back to the ship and then the ship through the flashes of the light of the Morse code or however that word, they would flash any news they received from the battle. All England was, was waiting, holding its breath, waiting to find out what happened at Waterloo. Word finally leaked back and uh, the words, as the man looked through the the Winchester Cathedral, he was looking through, they began to flash out the words, Wellington, defeated. And then one of them thick fogs settled in over the English Channel. And all the news they had, Wellington, defeated.
For three days, that fog settled in over that channel. And all of England went into mourning. The, the financial system crashed. I mean, they, they knew the war had been lost and they were mourning the loss. Wellington had been defeated. But then on the third day, as the fog began to, began to rise, the message was completed. Wellington defeated Napoleon. And the sobs and the sighs were turned to the shouts of victory as the news had reached back that their commander, their general, had been victorious. I read that story and I got to thinking about that first day. I mean, on Calvary, they took his lifeless body down and they laid it in the tomb and all the disciples and the followers went into mourning. The first day, the message was Jesus defeated. Second day, as a thick fog settled over, over, the, over that place, Jesus defeated. But on the morning of that third day, bless your heart, as that fog began to lift, the message was completed. Jesus defeated Satan. Thank God he walked out of that tomb alive and declared himself alive by many infallible truths. And I'm just here to tell you the message of Easter is because he lives, we shall also live. Because he lives, we can face our tomorrows. Because he lives, there's hope. Because he lives, the grave's not the end. Because he lives, bondage and chains can be broken. Because he lives, salvation is possible. Because he lives, forgiveness is available. I'm here to tell you this morning, yes, it was a necessity. Yes, it was a misery. But thank God on the morning of the third day, what turned it as a misery into a victory because Jesus lives today. Oh, no sad news here. Biden might be in the White House, but Jesus is on the throne. Amen. Our country may be going to pot, but bless your heart, I'm here to tell you everything's all right in heaven and everything's all right with the people of God. Our future's as bright as the promises of God. I'm here to tell you because he lives, everything's going to be all right. Amen. The victory of it all. No sad report here, friend. He lives. But my question is, do you live? Oh, you say, preacher, my heart's beating and my lungs are taken in air. Good, good, physically. But do you live spiritually? Have there ever been a time in your life when you accepted the Lord Jesus as your Savior? If you've not, we'd like to give you that opportunity to do that today. Let's stand together. Heads are bowed. Eyes are closed.